podcast, Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy to have you here today. Today, I am releasing a conversation I had with the author and art teacher, uh, Jenny O'Dell. I tell more about her background in the beginning of the conversation and when I introduce her, but this particular um, conversation was was recorded just over a year ago and was initially released uh, for the platform Meaning of Life TV. And I had every intention of releasing the conversation on my podcast, but then the pandemic took over and, and, and kind of my life swerved into a bit of chaos for a while. Uh, and there's a lot of transitions going on. But now that uh, I'm more settled, I have about three or four of these uh, backlog conversations with, with very interesting writers, philosophers, scientists that I'm, that I'm looking forward to giving you or sharing with you. And this is the first. Uh, Jenny wrote a book called How to Do Nothing, um, and it focuses on, on sort of, a, it's almost like a political manifesto on how to resist the attention economy. This is the economy that is driven on capturing and seizing and keeping our attention focused in ways that we may not be on board with. So um, she offers ways to resist the deleterious effects of the attention economy. Um, and I, I just, Myself, I went back and listened to this conversation on a, on a recent walk, and um, one of the things I appreciate about this conversation is its own peripatetic or walking and wandering style. We literally just wander through multiple themes and topics that she raises in the book, which include a wonderful story by Herman Melville called um, Bartleby the Scrivener. Uh, we, we talk about how art can function like a prosthetic for attention, how we, talk, we look into the relationship between, in some ways, rehabilitating our attention and how that lines up with a restoration of a healthy internal ecosystem of ourself and, and how that healthier internal ecosystem of self intersects with the sort of the ecological and political ecosystem that we are a part of. Um, now, thread, threaded throughout this entire conversation, I would say, is an appreciation of the relationship between how we perceive the world and and how that uh, either hinders or or makes available our access to the sublime. So the sublime, what I like to refer to as the everyday sublime, is running through the core of this whole conversation and is ultimately revealed in the quality of the attention we give to each and every moment. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too, particularly for folks in the meditative world. Uh, I think uh, the way she talks about perception and, and, and art theory around perception is, is one, are wonderful lenses through how we can look back into our own meditative process. So I very much hope you enjoy this conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with Jenny. As you'll hear, there were a few uh, audio issues, uh, both in terms of our connectivity, and then I think there was a little bit of scratching on her mic at a few points. But those those minor uh, issues aside, I thought it was a very rich conversation, and there will be a link in the show notes for you to her book, How to Do Nothing. It's a great title. It's a great theme for our current climate for pandemic life, but hopefully also it will shape the way we collectively start to perceive ourselves and others and the world we're in beyond the pandemic. 
So without further ado, I bring you now Jenny Odell. I am now with Jenny Odell, who's an artist and writer based in the Bay Area of California. And um, as her new book, which is called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, as the jacket on her bio says, she has been an artist in residence at the San Francisco Dump, Facebook, the Internet Archive, and the San Francisco Planning Department. Um, so I want to warmly welcome you to Meaning of Life today, Jenny. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So this book you've written, How to Do Nothing, is kind of rapidly becoming a new subgenre in uh, n- nonfiction these days on how to deal with, how, how can... How can we help people better deal with and wrestle with the, uh, the impact of technology on their life and um, beyond their individual life? You've made clear in other interviews and in articles that this book is not self-help, that it's more, I don't know if, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but do you see it more as being kind of a political ecological manifesto of sorts? Yeah, I think it would definitely be something closer to that. Um, and, you know, not only is it not self-help, I think, you know, I've been telling people that you might actually feel more confused by the time you get to the end of the book, which is sort of the opposite of self-help, right? Um, it's very anti-quick fix, right. um, which I think a lot of self-help kind of purports to have. And and something that I'm really adamant about is that this, like, question of the attention economy, which a lot of people, you know, solely associate with social media or technology more broadly, um, for me, is tied to all of these other things around that, like, um, you know, the sort of like urban planning, environmentalism, um, uh, history, you know, history of labor, you know, like all of this stuff kind of like ties in in different ways um, for me throughout the book. So it's really like a, um, it's my kind of principled effort to make something that's a little bit, um, takes a little bit longer to digest maybe, and is a little bit more complex in the way that it's structured. Right. And the the nature of the book itself seems to mirror your general approach to art, if I'm reading what I've understood about your approach to art correctly. Um, So basically, what is your approach to art and how does that inform how you how you went into this this book? Yeah, um, I think that there's probably, you know, different ways of understanding what art is or what it means to make art. And there's, you know, on the one end of the spectrum, you have like, the sort of like Jackson Pollock, like something from nothing. Like I had a blank canvas and I just expressed this like inner sort of essence onto this canvas. Um, and then at the kind of other end, you have almost like a total negation of that, like almost an emptiness. So, you know, that would be for me something like the John Cage piece where the musician plays nothing. Um, and then the actual piece is the sounds in the room. Um, and I skew very much to that side of the sort of, uh, spectrum of of ways of making or thinking about making where I tend to enjoy looking at but also making art that creates a space for a different kind of perception so like it's still something very active on the part of the artist like the artist still has to construct something but it oftentimes doesn't look like what we would traditionally consider art to be which is like creating a new object or an image out of nothing so um, the examples that I give in the book are often you know things where the artist created some sort of frame, like probably the simplest example is the one that I talk about, um, by Scott Pollock, who, uh, just 
you know, on a, basically on a cliff overlooking the ocean at San Diego, put the kind of red, I don't know what you call it, the stuff, the red kind of, uh, boundary tape, boundary tape. Yeah. Um, around, you know, a handful of chairs and had people sign up for this event and they were ushered into their seats. They watched the sunset. They were encouraged not to take photos and then they applauded and there were refreshments afterward. So like when you see the actual photo of the piece, it's like, it's just some chairs. It's a a conceptual conceit that, um, allows nonetheless, you know, the participants to, see the sunset in a new way um so it's really more about the sunset than the artist um and i think that that's how i uh think about a lot of things and it's definitely how i make art yeah and then in in terms of how that relates to the your organization and presentation of your thesis in the book it seems like you you're drawing on lots of different uh, think conceptual ideas and 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 kind of thought leaders in various fields to synthesize a, a fairly novel approach to resistance, which I, I definitely want to unpack with you. Does that seem fair? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and that's something, again, like, uh, because I teach art, um, but I teach art to non-art majors. Um, a lot of my students come in having that kind of uh, more traditional model of art making. Um, and so I um, find myself having to argue or have to articulate a new sense of what is novel for them, where it's not a new thing. It's a new uh, context around something. It's a new synthesis of existing things. And really, like, truly, you can't really point to anything in culture that arose from nothing. Like, everything borrowed from the things around it and was influenced by the things around it. I just, I think it's nice to just run with that and actually, like, not only acknowledge it, but really utilize it. And uh, in terms of, like, you know, me making something, I'm almost like this blank space that kind of just moved through all of these different ideas and influences and, and the output of that was this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you're describing, I a resisting the temptation to categorize you as a cagey artist, which would be a terrible <laughs> pun if I were to make that. But also, um, it seems like there is a sense that you, my, my way of framing it, you would be trying to facilitate a perceptual shift in the viewer through context manipulation and um, sort of an empty negative space of some sort. Yeah, or just different information, like, um, or, or, yeah, ways of presenting information. Like, I mentioned in the book that when I was in residence at the dump, um, my exhibition kind of just looked like an archive or a library. I mean, it was just white shelves with these 200 objects on them that I had monomaniacally researched everything about for three months, like where they were made and like, is there street view imagery of the factory? How much was it worth? Like, why does this thing exist? And, um, I just really wanted to recreate that feeling of discovery for the viewer. And, um, and so there's really nothing more that you need than this like setup of these shelves with the objects. And then these tags that I made that you could scan with your phone and get all of that information and, and kind of see it for yourself that I had synthesized. Um, and as I mentioned in the book, someone who came to the show said, like, did you actually make anything or did you just put things on shelves? Um, and I was like, both, you know, right. Like I, yes, I just put things on shelves, but I, I did an incredible amount of work, um, to, you know, gather this information in this context around things. And then also think about how I can kind of like re-enchant these objects for the viewer, um, and ask them to look at, I mean, literally trash, um, 
and not like, you know, trash that I picked out because it was cool or old or vintage, like just trash mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and really invite like a closer look at that that has the same amount of fascination that I felt. Right. Yeah. And that that moves into themes that I definitely want to get into kind of in the heart of this conversation around um, the sublime, the unfathomable, the, this kind of this radiance of ordinary objects. Um, but if we come back to the sort of the working title of your book, um, Resisting the Attention Economy, the subtitle there, um, I think many people may have a sense of what the attention economy is, but when you use that word, those, that phrase, what exactly are you signifying? Uh, I'm signifying, you know, for the most part, the, you know, what people would think of as the attention economy, which is like, you know, just the design of social media um, and as, as well as things like clickbait headlines, um, things, you know, that go back, you know, through the history of advertising, things that are designed to kind of get and keep your attention. Um, but then I think the way that I'm using it in the book is also including, um, this kind of cloud of phenomena around that, that includes, um, more like just sort of like cultural ideas or assumptions, like the idea of the personal brand or the idea, um, that, the, the, like Twitter is the world, like the things that are happening there, um, are the sum of everything that has happened. Um, and that you need to be constantly participating in that. Um, so those are things that are a little bit more like nebulous, but, um, I think there are effects of those design decisions. Um, and so I count them as part of the attention economy as well. And also within that, would you include kind of the monetization of time? Cause you, I know you wrote about that quite a bit, the sort of the, um, the way that time has been parceled and and units of time get get spent and and consumed right. etc. Yeah, I think it's definitely. I would say it's like real, for me, it's like related and adjacent. But I don't know that I would put that necessarily. Almost like maybe the other way around that the attention economy for me is subsumed into the idea that time is money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it seems like a, a downstream manifestation of that yeah. more primary yeah. principle. Um, so, you know, in the book, you kind of look into some of the historical patterns of resistance to kind of broader capitalist agendas, um, mm. and you offer a critique of those. Uh, how is your? How do you view your approach as as you describe as a third third way? What are the What are the other two ways of of resisting that you kind of uh, don't see as being as, as viable? Um, well, I guess there's really only one that it's opposed to because, um, you know, so a really important figure for me in the book is, is Bartleby from the Melville short story, Bartleby the Scrivener. Um, and I'm sure many people are familiar with the, that story in general, but basically all you need to know for the purposes of this is that, um, there is a a clerk in the story who's asked to do something very simple and he just keeps saying, I would prefer not to. And the narrator, who is his boss, is just sort of like flabbergasted um, over and over again. And uh, and I find that phrase really interesting. And many people have found it interesting because saying I would prefer not to is not saying no. Um, it's not only not saying no, it's refusing the terms of the question altogether. So it's like not only would I prefer not to do the thing that you're asking me to do, I would prefer not to even answer that question. Um, and, uh, you know, I quote some writing that's been done about that phrase where, you know, it's kind of like creating this space on the side, um, of this 
what, what previously seemed like either a forwards or backwards kind of thing. Like either you comply or you don't comply. But then there's this third option where you don't even comply with the idea of complying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just think that's really brilliant and a really useful idea, particularly if you find yourself in a situation that you otherwise find intolerable that you don't want to comply with. Yeah, that, that that story is a kind of an interesting one. I, I it's been a long ten, time since I read it. Came up in high school English, um, and right as you described, it's a story of a clerk who basically a copyist for a lawyer, and every time he ref- is asked to do something, he he comes back with this kind of inscrutable phrase, "I prefer not to," and his employer becomes. In- uh, increasingly exasperate, exacerbated, exasperated. Sorry, um, by this by this staunch refusal. I did want to kind of talk about that story in relate in, in broader depth in terms of your approach to uh, enacting that kind of refusal in in one's life. Um, because I, I just read reread the story and, I, and as I read it, I was trying to figure out what. Like, what was the outcome of Bartleby's refusal? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, what, like, is it... And I, and I ask you that question because I was trying to think about what, what did he achieve or what was... What developed out of that, that stance? And Right. Oh, man, there's some crazy construction going on outside. Hopefully you, you can't get, hear that. Okay. Just a hint of it. Don't worry about it. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, yeah, no, of course the end of the story is that he dies in jail. (laughs) So, um, you know, because he, he refuses. So he, he prefers not to, then he prefers not to work. Then he prefers not to move. And so the, the boss basically moves offices and then he's left there. And then the, the next occupants have him removed to jail basically. And then when the the narrator visits him there, he's sort of wasting away because he prefers not to eat. And then he basically dies. Um, So, yeah, that's a valid question. Right. Um, But I think it's more for me um, just uh, like a really important rhetorical device. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that story kind of takes it to its logical extreme. Um, But uh, I think just as a, as a phrase and as a concept, um, it's for me a really important reminder that there are times when you don't think you have a decision to make, or you think your decision exists on one plane, but you actually have this other option available to you, um, to sort of move laterally outside of that. Um, not that that is easy or like solves the problem at all. It's just this other option that once I started thinking about it, I, I, found it really interesting as just a direction to kind of think in. Right. There's also the, the, the piece that I, that I picked up on, um, I'm not sure if this is valid, but was the, was the, the actually experience of the employer himself in that, you know, he was very deeply frustrated by this refusal, but at the same time he, like he didn't just, throw Bartleby under the bus. You know, mm-hmm. there, was, there was a kind of compassion and concern for the well-being of Bartleby, even amidst Bartleby's refusal, Bartleby's refusal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find it, I mean, I think one of the funniest parts to me of that, of that story, which I find really funny in a lot of parts, um, is that, yeah, he has this weird ambivalence where he's, he's like, well, maybe if I just ask him this way, or, you know, maybe if I just kind of, 
like he just, he keeps trying. Um, and he even says at one point, like, I wish, I wished that Bartleby would just like basically do battle with me on the same plane. Like I wish he would just, so we could agree on just the level of the question, right? Like that would be so much more understandable if he just refused to do the, like, I would not like to do the job. Um, and I find it really funny that in part of the story, he, he, um, reads these, I can't remember the titles now, but he decides to read these two kind of like philosophical texts, um, that were, um, let's see, I don't know if I have my copy around here. Anyway, uh, one is pre one was by Priestley and the other one, I can't remember who it was by, but they're basically these two kind of treatises on the, um, they're sort of against free will. So there were two arguments saying that, um, you know, men, you know, to some degree have some, make some decisions, but really a lot of their behavior is sort of determined. Um, and if you, you know, if you look at the other two characters, the other two employees in Bartleby, they are very mechanistic. Mm -hmm. They're described as having certain characteristics. Like one of them always acts a certain way at a certain time of the day. So they're kind of like clockwork. Um, and then in, in, uh, contrast to those, you have this, you have Bartleby, which is sort of like this existential, you know, character who is not like clockwork and is like completely on a different plane of existence. So, um, so I just find it really funny that, that in the midst of this whole thing, the, the lawyer is like, reads these two things about, um, how everyone does everything for a reason mm -hmm. to make himself feel better about what's happening with Bartleby because he's so kind of galled by the, um, incomprehensibility of Bartleby. Yeah. I mean, he calls him inscrutable at he, one point. Yeah, yeah. He's definitely inscrutable. Um, I, I, I want to come back to Bartleby in particular, and I want to share my English high school English teacher's analysis of Bartleby uh, and get your take on it, because it feeds into some other themes you, that you get into around perception. Um, so it might be good to pause that for now um, and, and move into uh, how you envision a, a strategy of resistance um, against the attention economy. It, it, it involves, you know, moving your attention laterally, right? Away from right. certain, the screens and all the, the bobbles of the screens and then reconnecting to place, time, biosphere, region, etc., and people. Um, right. Yeah. Um, it, it leads in those directions, but I think it kind of starts with a very Bartleby-like moment um, where you know, it's like, there's one way of understanding the issue where you have this horrible, evil attention economy that is, I mean, super nefarious. And, um, and, you know, one reaction to that is like, okay, I'm just going to quit everything. Like I'm going to quit Facebook and I'm going to quit Twitter. I am not going to participate at all. Uh, you know, you could even take this to the extreme of like, I'm not even going to read the news. I am just going to sort of like walk away from this whole thing altogether. Um, and then you also, I think have relatedly like people who will do, do things like quit Facebook and then tweet about it, like this kind of performative, like quitting of, yeah. in, in protest. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's still within the kind of forward or backward, um, way of thinking about the, that's still the yes or no. Um, and so the, I would prefer not to option in that situation for me is, um, you know, whatever, if you want to quit, that's fine. But um, but I think you can also not quit and maybe it's like, I've been comparing it a lot to Aikido, which is, you know, this form of self-defense where you're using your opponent's, um, momentum and kind of energy 
you're using it against them or you're using it for yourself. Um, and that requires so much careful observation of your opponent and, and what they're doing. And I, it's like, I'm almost more interested in within this attention economy, taking this kind of like weirdly askew, uh, perspective on the things that are there in the attention economy and paying really close attention to them and actually seeing how they're structured and how they work on me and other people. Um, so kind of, I, I think, I think I describe it as like participating, but not as asked, like I'm not being a good user. Um, and, uh, you know, just as a sort of depressing example, it's like, you can, like my boyfriend and I, the other day, we're looking at our, we're talking about Instagram and how, um, ads are sort of served to you in this moment of you feeling sort of bad a lot of the time scrolling through or like just feeling weird or envious or just kind of a lot of emotions. Um, and as we were talking about it, we decided to just see what our ads were, you know, like what are my, what are the ads that are served to me and what are the ads that are served to him? Of course they're different. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I hate ads, but there's something very different about looking at an ad as a subject of say like study, um, versus like passively consuming an ad, like actually, you know, holding your finger down and looking at this ad for a, a while and saying like, what's in this ad? You know, like, what is, how is it selling this thing? Like how, why is this being targeted to me? Um, you know, and that's, that to me is, is related to the preferring not to, and that it's not, you know, uh, throwing my phone out the window. It's actually looking very carefully at what's on my phone, but from a different, a different perspective, kind of stepping to the side and looking really carefully at the outlines of something. And how do, how do you find that ga that long gaze affects you differently? I think that in the best case scenario, it reestablishes some sense of agency. Um, I've been using this metaphor a lot lately of like, imagine if you went to the library and someone just threw a bunch of books at you when you walked in the door. Um, well, this is why I, I like the library because that doesn't happen when you go into the library, it's sort of inert and it's on you to kind of make these decisions about, um, you know, what is my research question? Uh, where are the parts of the library that have answers to this question and I'm going to like physically go to those places and I will take several hours to, you know, like get that information, not take any of it for granted, try to like synthesize something from that. And in all of that process, I feel very intentional. Like I'm seeking something out uh, and I have made that decision. And that's very different than obviously having lots of information thrown at you and packaged in a way that's going to eliminate that period of time where you would be able to make that decision. Like, I mean, I think even Instagram would be so different, right? If you opened it and it was just a white screen, right? Like that would be so different if it, you just opened it and then it's, and then you had to think about like, Oh wait, what is it that I actually am seeking here? Like, what do I want to see? Of course there's, it just, it's the opposite, right? Like it's auto playing videos and it's just like, you know, it's trying to get you engaged like immediately. So well, yeah, and, and I would even add to that that, that some, there's something about the the experience of those in, those those interfaces that disables the ability to remember what you're there for. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, totally. And so, whereas whereas like you know in the library example, I'm very aware the whole time of why I'm there. You know, uh, I might get like pleasantly distracted by some book for a while, but you know overall, it's like I am I understand why I'm there. So. Um, I think that, you know, uh, you know, in that example of say, looking at the ad, you know, carefully, I, that's like the sort of center of gravity feels different to me. Whereas like if I'm passively consuming the ad, 
um, the weight is sort of in the ad, right? And I'm this kind of like empty, inattentive space um, versus if I'm, if I have made the decision to kind of like carefully look at this ad, then the center of gravity feels like it's more in me. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So I think that it's, there are a lot of the practices in the book, you know, that I talk about, like these practices of close observation are really helpful for reestablishing that kind of balance. Yeah, that, that definitely seems to be a a significant part of your thesis about sustaining a develop a deepening of attention a a deepening quality of attention and you spend considerable time in a few chapters i think talking about um art as a prosthesis for the strengthening of attention and i want to have you talk about that but i also would be interested in your thoughts on how to compare that endeavor of using art as a as a cultivator for attention versus another popular form of attentional training known as mindfulness. Um, and there's been, I, I've taught, I teach mindfulness, um, but I'm also, I want to be clear, I'm, I'm quite critical of contemporary popular forms of it. I think there's, there's a lot of problematic areas in it. Um, but I wanted, I would love to hear what you have to think about, or how to say about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's a ton of overlap between the things that I am talking about and things that would fall into the category of mindfulness. And there are some, you know, distinct overlaps. Like I think the epigraph to the chapter, uh, on, on those art pieces is John Cage, who's an artist quoting a Zen saying, right. About like, if you do something for a while and it seems boring, just do it for longer and longer periods of time. And eventually you find that it's not boring at all. And that's like a mindfulness practice if I've ever heard of one. Right. Um, so, um, I, I think, you know, uh, one of the reasons I didn't, um, explicitly reference kind of more, uh, you know, things, in, in the realm of mindfulness is because I am also very critical of um, how mindfulness gets kind of packaged, um, especially in a place like Silicon Valley, which is, you know, a lot of my book is kind of situated in that um, sort of like mindfulness as life hack, um, you know, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I was really, I really didn't want to get kind of uh, fall into that bucket, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So, but I, but I definitely think that the, the, the pieces of art that I'm talking about, which are largely conceptual art pieces, um, are achieving pretty much, I think a very, at least related goal to, to mindful. There's no goal, right. But like, uh, something related to mindfulness, which is this kind of, um, expansion of attention through a pretty like disciplined practice. It's like the art is the art piece is trying to help you learn how to do that for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and it can feel, you know, some conceptual art can feel like it can have an endurance quality to it, right? Like ha- sitting through, uh, John Cage 433 can probably feels like a really long time for people because they're not used to sitting in a room where the musician isn't playing anything. Um, you know, and, uh, and then that's even part of the piece itself is like, if the piece is about ambient sound, then that includes like people coughing and uncomfortably shifting in their chairs. Or as I mentioned in the, in the book, the piece that I saw people laughing in the audience because they were uncomfortable. It's like, you know, after I thought about it, it was like, that was clearly part of the piece that he anticipated. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah. One of the things actually I was going to ask, there's a slight rustling on your end. I think maybe from the fact that I asked you to put the earbuds in, I apologize for that. Um, If you just are able to hold that forward a little bit, that might 
So your audio doesn't get degraded at all. Okay. That's great. Uh, um, that's, I'll let you know if I hear it again. But um, the, the thing with, with my, what I appreciated in reading through the sections on uh, c- cultivating the sustained attention, A, I appreciated the, how you describe the experience of modern art, which for me, not very, being very versed in modern art, I've always dismissed as just sort of conceptual and, you know, not really, not requiring skill in a certain sense. Um, you know, it's just something anybody could do, and it's just this gimmicky idea. But in the way you wrote about it, and, I, and if anyone reads the book, I would recommend they, they read with either an iPad or a laptop nearby to actually look up the works of art that you reference, because I think it really does help convey the idea that um, what you seem to be describing was in, and, and there was one example where you, you were looking at an Ellsworth Kelly mm-hmm. uh, installation. Yeah, it's a... It's, I don't remember the, the order of these, but it's like red, green, blue, black. That's probably not the right order, but it's the list of colors. Um, yeah. Four, and they're squares just, color. Yeah. Yeah. There are these kind of vertical, uh, panels that are painted, just matte that color. Um, and like just incredibly intense and saturated color, which, you know, you can get an idea of it by looking at it online, but unfortunately it's this thing. A lot of conceptual art is like you it is, I mean, it was a lot of it was literally made to create an embodied sensation. <laughs> so you actually have to go stand in front of it. And, uh, you know, I had, you know, in some cases, like the same, um, uh, ways of thinking about it that you just described, like I was aware of Ellsworth Kelly, you know, for a long time. And I was like, Oh, right. Abstraction. Like I just kind of wrote it off as like, that's, uh, you know, part of a sort of intellectual, like art movement or whatever, uh, didn't really like question it any further. And then, um, and then it was just that I happened to be walking by, uh, I was at the SF MoMA and I walked by that piece, which is, you know, the four panels. Mm-hmm. And I was just like stopped in my tracks, like, like by whichever way I can't think the first one was red, um, where it didn't look like a flat panel. It was you know, it was like actually looked like it was moving and I was aware that it had to do with the color and my perception of the color and probably something going on with my eyes and, uh, and that, you know, that was something that he was creating that space for that to happen. And I actually stood in front of it for a really long time and I had to make my way down and stand in front of each one. Um, and you know, you stand even maybe 10 feet away. Um, you're not going to get the same, effect so it was this like really kind of pleasant surprise to me Mm -hmm. where i was like oh this isn't like yes this is abstract art but it's not emotionally abstract um it's it's visually abstract but the abstraction is in the service of like bringing to the fore this very embodied and uh alive sensation that's happening between me as an embodied viewer and this thing that's on the wall um and so i think that's that's you know I would have a similar description of like most of the art pieces that I enjoy is that it, I have that sort of moment of surprise and it allows me to see something that I couldn't see. Like my other, I, I think it's in the original essay that I wrote, but I don't, I don't know if I mentioned it in the book. There's a James Terrell uh, piece. It's a type of piece that he's done in different places. Um, the one I saw was in Minneapolis. It's called sky sky pressure. And mm-hmm. it's basically a room that's, sort of like halfway sunken into the ground 
and you sit inside and the walls are kind of uh, angled so that you can like look upwards and there's a square that you can see, you know, the sky through. And I went there on three different days and the clouds were different on all three different days. And uh, not only could I sort of see them because they're being, you know, held, they're being presented there for my, you know, observation, but literally the framing of it makes the the movement and the speed of the clouds visible to me in a way that if I went outside and like lay on the grass, it wouldn't look the same. So it's really quite literally allowing you to see something differently or something that you couldn't otherwise see. Yeah. And I could be reading too much into this, but I think you made this, made this connection in those chapters too, that um, you draw on the, on kind of the theory of Martin Buber around Mm -hmm. I, it versus I, thou relationship. Um, And, it sounded to me like in with the with the uh, Ellsworth Kelly piece, um, and even in the one you just described, there 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 was something about the, the 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 installation and the way it was presented that it that it facilitated that kind of a shift. Yeah. Oh, you're not reading too much into it. I mean, I think I actually have a parenthetical in there where um, there's a word that uh, Buber uses that in the translation that I read, um, the translator says that basically there's not a good English equivalent of this word. It means body, but like as a verb. So like, it's like saying that if you have an I thou relationship with something that it bodies across, it bodies across from you. (laughs) Um, it's almost like it's, yeah, there's not really a good word. Right. Um, and then when I get to the Ellsworth Kelly piece, I, I, that's kind of when I understood like what it means for something to body yeah. across and, from you. And to me, that that kind of speaks back to a potential overlap with, say, the the non-agenda of mindfulness, which is to sh- facilitate a shift in literally one perception of oneself and one's relationship to others. In that, what some of the ways traditions describe it, you move from a dualistic perception of being a subject looking at objects out there to a non-dual experience mm-hmm. of fundamental unity that where you are not this isolated thing within a bag of skin but you are literally and this is what hard for for non for people who haven't had this direct experience it's hard to swallow but you actually experience yourself as everything that is arising moment to moment right totally um and i uh i mentioned in that same chapter that uh david hockney who is uh a lot of things that he's written and said in interviews about observation were really helpful to me. Um, he was not a fan of, uh, one point perspective. Uh, you know, like you can think of the traditional like Renaissance painting where there's a one, there's a vanishing point. Um, and as he describes it, the painting is sort of like, uh, this window, uh, that you are looking through to the scene that has nothing to do with you. Um, so you don't really have any reality in this equation. And also because there's one vanishing point, it suggests one viewpoint. Um, so your viewpoint is kind of prescribed already. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's not a fan of that. So, you know, his paintings are, if you look at them, like, uh, there's, or even the things that he did with photography, there's many vanishing points. Um, he loves to reference, you know, for instance, like Chinese scroll painting where, um, there are things in front of other things, but there isn't a single vanishing point. And your eye moving around this piece is part of your perception of the piece and it's part of the narrative. Um, and, and so I think a lot of the, you know, Ellsworth Kelly, but also other, um, uh, painters working in that same way, were trying to make a painting that isn't that, that isn't this like window 
dates that you look through to see this thing that you're unrelated to. It's actually very much about you. It's about a relationship between you and this thing that you're looking at. Um, and I just find that really refreshing. And it's honestly looking at that painting was like an unforgettable experience, like mm. because it involved me, you know, and, and a relationship that I had with this thing. Yeah. Um, I think in listening to you I, and also being attentive to context, as you've taught me through your book, I think I've diagnosed what may be the rattling. I think your mic on your headset is r- rustling against your collar, the shirt of your collar. Oh. The collar of your shirt, sorry. Um, on, the, on the right side. Yeah, oh, this. That, that bit. So I don't, sometimes when I, that happens to me, I just pull the, the, the cords forward a little bit um, if that's not okay. too, too distracting for you. Okay, hopefully that helps. So just to pick up on what you were saying, though, um, that's essentially part of my critique of contemporary mindfulness is that it, it, it privileges a specific vantage point of attention or and a particularly a particular vantage or quality of attention itself that you're meant to be a anchored in the present and primarily connected to sensory motor experiences. And you're meant to be sort of glued, dialed in on that experience without any judgment or any overlay of judgment. And that, to me, collapses down the, the, the multiple ways that awareness and attention can move and, and draw connection and uncover deeper meaning and also render different realities, which is a theme I also want you to um, speak about. Um, so it seems to me, and, I, and I, my, from my take, I think the kind of active and curious attention that you are addressing, in my view, actually more directly fulfills the agendas or the intentions of a mindfulness practice versus, say, mindfulness meditation itself, where you might be homing in on just one, one, one layer or one, one rendered version of, of your experience. Yeah, totally. And I hadn't thought about it until now, but it sort of um, comes back to that, the, the Martin Buber distinction between I it and I thou, where um, I think one of the reasons I, I have not ever, like, I'm not a person who sits and meditates. Um, whereas like, but I am a person who, when I walk, you know, to the grocery store, um, will, I will frequently be like arrested by some plant, uh, you know, or like while waiting in line at the store, we'll think about like, my mortality or something or like how strange it is to be alive or you know and these are like unplanned like things they just like you know uh and somewhat inviting somewhat just happen but um the times that I some of like the most fulfilled moments of my life were when I saw something unexpected that was so I don't even know how to describe it it was like self-effacing um and so my most recent example is, uh, I was on a hike alone, uh, not super far from here. And, uh, but it was in a redwood forest and you don't really expect to see a ton of birds in a redwood forest. It's just, you know, it's really dense. And I happened to see, uh, a vireo, which is like a very, very small bird. I just was, I, my eyes were kind of pointed in the right directions at the right time. And I happened to have my binoculars. So I was already just kind of amazed. I spent a really long time just following it around. And then at some point I realized that its baby was there also, um, just kind of sitting on the ground and it was really small, um, and very, like very young. And it was kind of like bumbling around like really clumsily. 
and it would sit totally still until the the mom came by and then would kind of like get excited, you know, about getting some bugs or something. And I honestly could not tell you how long I was there. I just was there until they left. Um, and I also couldn't really tell you like where I went during that time. I was just gone. Um, and after what I left, I felt like this weird, almost like disassembling gratitude where it's like, you don't even know what to do with this feeling. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, it's weird to talk about, like, I, you can't really seek out that feeling. Um, but I've definitely experienced it. And, and the thing that strikes me about the difference between that and maybe the more kind of, um, instrumentalized forms of mindfulness is like, it's so not about me that I don't even know what me is anymore in that moment. Um, it's not about like Jenny becoming more mindful. It's like about something totally different. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And that, just to pick up on that, that's, that feeds into a sense I got of from you around, um, the sublime or the transcendent that, that the way we look at anything can, can pivot in, in, in either kind of a complacent routinized habit of perception or could open you up to this kind of, you know, when you use the word unfathomable a lot, which has been rattling around my head as I've been walking around my neighborhood after reading your book, I'm looking at trees thinking, holy shit, these, these like these things are here. And, 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 and that speaks to, I think what you're, what you're, I want to try to connect the dots here into like a more sustained, sustained form of resistance, like political resistance. But uh, the reality you see influence, has a direct bearing on how you engage, correct? Yeah. Like and, what, it's like the coordinates of your world or something. Like what you do and don't see reflects how it's possible to move through that space. I mean, as a really like literal physical example, um, I talk in the later chapter about rediscovering this creek that went through my childhood neighborhood um, that I had only noticed as like in kindergarten, the place where when you your ball goes over the fence, you can't get it back. Um, that was the, like the only incarnation of this creek in my memory. And then you know, in, I, you know, a couple of years ago, basically rediscovered it through a roundabout way. I was researching my neighborhood. Um, and I went, as I described in the book, I went there with a friend who also realized that he had grown up close to this Creek, but further downstream. And it was really weird to be walking. It's almost like it's dry most of the year cause it's an arroyo. So, um, like walking this sort of basically sunken pathway through the everyday. So like seeing the back of the bank of America, like seeing the back of these like suburban houses, um, if you were to go through the tunnel, you would emerge in the Apple campus. <laughs> um, and it just, and I ended up actually writing a much longer essay after the book about that Creek and just all of the different landscapes that it connects. Um, and so, I mean, in a literal sense, like walking in this Creek gives you like this very strange access and this very strange way of moving through the space that otherwise has like roads and paths that are established ways of moving through that space. Um, and unless you notice the Creek, you would not be able to do that. And that's like a literal example of that. But I think it's also kind of a metaphor for, um, you know, rendering different coordinates with what you pay attention to. And then that affects what you think it's possible to do or like how to move through the space. Mm -hmm. 
And that does lead into another theme that you explore in the book around the kind of the, the implications of what you refer to as context collapse. I know that's not your phrase. I forget the, the author that you're drawing from there, but this idea that you know we're, we are living in this kind of monochromatic, one-dimensional, acontextual, online digital life now, and, and the severe effects that that has both on kind of the external ecology, but, but also our internal ecology of self. Um, and I'd just love to hear what you have to say about the, those implications and, and how your form of attention slash practices of moving attention laterally um, kind of re revives and re-enlivens those deadened spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, so that term was coined by Dana Boyd. Um, but then, you know, as I found in researching um, that term, she herself says that she is indebted to um, the author of this book called No Sense of Place, uh, which is actually pre-internet. So um, he's talking more about, uh, I think, basically like TV. Uh, well, you know, like TV and like national media. Um, and, and I, I found it a really helpful illustration of what context collapse is where he says as a thought experiment, basically like, uh, you know, imagine if you went on a vacation and you had a, you have a different version of the story for your friends, your family and your, uh, employer, let's say. And then imagine if someone threw you a surprise party and you had to say the same, you had to give the same version of the story to everyone. Uh, like it's basically going to be boring or it's going to offend someone. And when I read that, I was like, wow, that's, you know, like even more true now, right. Uh, where you have a very context collapsed situation like Twitter where, um, I mean, people have found this out the hard way, right? Like you think, you know, what your audience is, like you think you're talking to your friends and then overnight you become this, uh, either celebrity or a pariah, you know, uh, depending on what you said. And, and once that process gets started, like this thing that maybe someone said in a certain context and not just the context of other things they've said, but of their personality, which like people who know them would actually know, uh, that thing gets, you know, decontextualized and then it just spreads like wildfire. Uh, you have like people very quickly piling on. Um, and I think I liken it in the book to, um, what happens with erosion where there's not enough ground plants, you know, along, let's say like a Creek. Um, and so all of the soil is just getting washed away because it's, there's just nothing to hold it in place. Like there's nothing to slow down that flow. Um, and so it just gets further and further decontextualized. And, um, and so yeah, you, you really, I, 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 uh, was very struck by that, that section because it, it, put language to a feeling I've had for a long time about my ambivalence uh, with social media in general. I just, no matter what you say, you're going to get whacked um, one way or the other. And, and it, I think you nailed it in the book. You said that it, for many, it brings the whole discourse down to the lowest common denominator, that it's everybody issues these like banal platitudes that don't offend anybody and, or the opposite, yeah. or the opposite happens. It just becomes one conflagration after another in the comment section. Right, 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 right. It's kind of a race to the bottom. And I think it's really important to acknowledge how much that's structured by the network itself. So, um, you have basically, you know, there's, there's a person who maybe gets something accidentally taken out of context, but then there are people who are increasingly crafting, 
utterances that they know will do well um, on social media. So that would be like someone who has a personal, like a professional personal brand or like a social media influencer. And I think it's really telling that um, a lot of social media influencers, if you kind of look at their, let's say, Instagram accounts, like the only theme seems to be like positivity, right? Like they all kind of coalesce around this idea of positivity, like, like good vibes and like being positive about your life. And like, there's really not a lot other than that. Like you just, you just described my industry in the yoga meditation world. It's just light and love <laughs> only. And for, for better or worse, I mean, actually I think it's for better. There's, there's starting to become this backlash of conversation around the, the, infl- the implications of the toxic positivity uh, are, are yeah. tied up with that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, yeah. So I think it's, that's an example of, of what happens when, uh, someone that's like an advanced stage of like someone has acknowledged context collapse and then they're, and then they're, uh, they're letting that influence like what they're even producing in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like, you know, to come back to the erosion metaphor, like when there's a flood in a Creek and there's lots of debris and stuff for if it's once that gets going, you as an individual don't necessarily want to stand in front of that. So it's like when you see like a sort of, uh, a pile on, on, on Twitter, right? Like being, it's really difficult to be the one person who's like, Hey, actually, um, I, I found this other article, you know, or like, Hey, actually, like, I think there's this other perspective, like that person always gets shouted down like so quickly. Um, and so I, yeah, I kind of asked this question in the book of like, if there's context collapse, then what does context collection look like? Like, is there a reverse process where, um, you, if you go back to that metaphor of the guy telling the story to all the people in the same room, like, what does it mean? What would it look like to sort of reestablish different boundaries and, um, discrete contexts, like, you know, a group of friends that knows who you are and like, or shares your, your political, uh, you know, you, you coalesce around some political goal, right. Um, and you're recognized and understood in that group and contextualized. Um, and, and that's one, one of the other reasons, you know, besides the fact that I obviously love the outdoors and, uh, and ecology in general, like the other really big reason e- ecology is so big in the book is because I think it gives this really helpful model of the importance of context and how to think about differences without, uh, like hard boundaries between them. So yeah, like something like a bioregion sort of has boundaries but you'd be hard-pressed to say like uh, the pacific northwest ends here well that's where uh, kind of philosophical level that's where your argument kind of moved into another parallel with what i see going on in buddhism where you know the the sense of self you have shifts from being a, a kind of stable static permanent entity known as me and what you what you encounter is a shifting, changing, and to use your kind of word, blobby self. That yeah. it's, where the yeah. boundaries are, are, are much more diffuse and harder to pin down. But it's not just the self is that way. It's that literally everything is. And um, summarizing it, you know, uh, one of, I had a teacher once who said, when you, when you really closely look at anything, you don't encounter nouns. Mm-hmm. You encounter verbs. Yeah, and absolutely. So... From that, one of the things I do I want to make sure we, we, we get to is how does the how does the the fallout of context collapse 
impair or disable collective m movements of resistance in a way. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I found in looking at um, successful activism in the past was um, this really interesting pattern that seemed not unecological of um, kind of nodes or small groups. Uh, I mean, not so small, but small enough where, um, you know, you, again, are recognized and, and held accountable. And uh, there's a context for what you say and you do there. Um, so you have kind of nodes like that, and then they would be connected to each other, sometimes across the entire country. Um, so that if one group kind of comes up with something new and interesting and useful or has some information that can spread um, to other groups. But that organization is very different than having a sea of individuals who are all connected to everything all the time with no sort of um, boundaries or um, closures um, and everything's sort of overexposed all the time. Um, and so, you know, even, even now, even, uh, even movements that have used social media in really smart ways, um, there, there's still, you'll, if you look, like, you'll see that there's still these really important elements of either, um, like, uh, house meetings or, um, or, you know, a closed, uh, chat on signal, um, like these kind of groups in which, um, you are not this anonymous <laughs> avatar that is operating in this context collapse environment, but you're actually like a person with an identity. Um, and I think it's really important because those are the kinds of environments in which you can have, um, like debate, right? Like I think the ideal unit <laughs> of this kind of, uh, uh, network would be like one in which you're all, you know, they're all sort of there like fighting for the same thing, but there could be people who are, you know, all different ages, all different backgrounds, people who maybe like challenge you a little bit on like your assumptions about how you think about something. Um, and, and you change as a result of that. And you're willing, like you're willing to do that. Like you all have enough mutual respect that you recognize that something will emerge from this group that is not quite any one person's vision. Right. And, and that was the other thing that I was also seeing in, in this, this history that I was studying was like, these are, these are distinctly democratic, uh, democratically structured groups. Like, um, they, they're, they may be connected to each other, but there's not really like a hierarchy. Um, uh, there's no like one central organization, like telling everyone what to do. Um, and so it's, it's, there's a lot more kind of like political innovation and flexibility that comes out of that structure, I think. Um, but that is a structure in which context exists very much. Right. Yeah. You know, I actually heard another interview you gave, I forget who it was with, maybe a woman on Vox, but uh, you were describing how, for whatever reason, you got, you were sharing a house with someone and you were hanging out on the roof looking up at the sky and you were talking about oh, your atheism and she was talking about her Catholicism or... Yeah. And, and clearly you guys were on very different pages theologically, but you said you had a very productive, meaningful interaction and, and conversation around those differences that didn't get heated or um, incendiary like that. And, and where if you were to do that online, you know, <laughs> yeah, it would evolve totally. very quickly. It's, it was almost like comically the opposite of, of talking to a stranger online because that was a residency. It was an artist residency in um, Kings Canyon, which is like a very remote area in the mountains. Um, and there were th only three of us. So there was a couple running the residency. Um, so we had dinner together every night for a month. And this was towards the end of that. Um, and so we knew each other pretty well at that point. Um, 
I mean, not, you know, I mean, actually we hadn't known each other for very long, but we had, you know, spent a lot of time already talking. And so, um, yeah, so we used to sit on the roof and watch the, the sunset cause you know, there's not really a lot else to do there and, uh, and it's beautiful, but yeah, at that point, it's like we had enough understanding of each other as individuals that we were able to have this really, you know, um, a conversation that was animated, like not just by respect, but like curiosity. Um, and you know, there are, uh, there, the, there was no goal to reach an agreement. I think that was the important thing. Yeah. And I think the reason I'm bringing it up just to, I knew there was a thought sort of moving through my mind somewhere around this, but it, it, it was, it's, it's that if you think about like the, the, the debates and things that go on online, very rarely, if ever, do you see something, wow, you know, I see it totally different now. I just changed my mind. Like, <laughs> people just, like, reinforce their own entrenched views over and over again till, 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 till they go to the grave almost. And a theme that you, that you really touched on, which, which struck me as important, was the importance of surprise in the ecology of a self. Mm-hmm. Right? Like in the context collapse, the self becomes this kind of petrified lowest common denominator uh, version of itself, for, like aligns around brand themes and doesn't waver, doesn't stays consistent through time. Um, and how tragic that is for, for oneself, but also beyond oneself. Um, and how we, in the context collapse, we're just not encountering elements of surprise that call forth a different expression of who are who we are, and, and you kind of touch you, you you nailed it really nicely in the book too. You described that eerie feeling you have of discovering something and knowing that it was always there, just not having been seen. Mm-hmm. That can happen in the environment, but also can happen in, in within you, right? Right, right. And I, I think I also describe um, hearing a song on the radio that I like for reasons I can't, I don't know, <laughs> you know, um, and that that is a kind of like pleasantly destabilizing experience because not only does it prove that I don't know myself in the way that I thought I did, um, that I like things that I didn't know that I liked, but also, you know, it's like, it gets into this, like, well, who is doing the liking and (laughs) what is this, I think actually appealed to. Um, and as I say in the book, like those are, those are moments in which like, I feel like your own aliveness is, is very present to you. Um, and then on the other end of things you have, you know, if you were to follow all of your algorithmically recommended, you know, uh, playlists and friends and things to watch, um, you would eventually become this kind of like static, um, unit that's very easy to advertise to because your preferences would be very solid. Um, and you, I mean, you'd basically be like the walking dead at that point, (laughs) you know, like aliveness is like change and being surprised and evolving in different ways um actually so i just i realized i have it on my desk i don't know if you've seen this book by uh byung chul han it's called the agony of eros Mm-mm. um he wrote the burnout society he's like a german philosopher um but in this i almost underlined this entire book which is called the agony of eros and he's basically saying that like our society makes eros and desire like and curiosity like impossible um, and he uses this phrase, the inferno of the same, mm. um, that like one is always confronted with if, if every, if you think everything is available to you and visible and graspable and consumable. Uh, and of course he talks about Martin Buber in the book, um, but that you're, you are trapped in the inferno of the same. And I just thought that was, I wish I had read this <laughs> before I wrote my book because 
that's I think that's what I'm describing is that um, not only would you become this kind of static uh, walking dead uh, kind of uh, personality, but that you yourself would not see anything different around you. Like the things that you perceive would also remain the same. Yeah, that sounds um, like uh, an apt description for the uh, sort of the uh, the penultimate state right before midlife crisis. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, everything's the same. Done. done, done it's same day, different. Same same stuff, different day, kind of thing, and, and uh, uh, there's a deadening that occurs there. Um, that is a hugely interesting theme to me, but it it does kind of. I know we need probably need to wrap up a little bit, but in, in a short bit, but um, it does suggest that part of what you're recommending really is a rehabilitation of self attention and uh, an experience of self in time and space. Um, which could then come back to you as self-help, like that, 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 you're, that you're, there is a kind of a self-help component here, which I know you're resistant to, but so maybe connect the dots for me. How, does, how do the attentional skills or, or activities, practices that you advocate lead really to kind of a kind of transformation um, of either political, ecological degradation that that you're concerned about yeah um i think that uh malcolm harris who wrote uh kids these days and it's a book that i uh that i cite in my book uh his blurb of my book was uh self-help for the collectively minded uh which i actually really like that description um because if you it's interesting to think about like if you accept this ecological model of the self like what is self-help in that situation it's actually like really hard to say. Um, and so, uh, I think, and that's where just to interrupt for a sec, but that's where I, some of the idealistic Buddhist folks, and I'm, and I'm, I'm very cagey on this myself, but like the, the idealistic Buddhist folks would say that when yourself is identified with the entire world, then your, your actions are in align with, you know, other care. Um, it's not the self-help isn't just focusing on the self that's contained within the bag of skin. It's it, the, the self, the boundaries of the self are expanded to include, include the all literally. Um, right. and so that's where that be, might be one that part, part of the shift in, in that story. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. I think, um, for me, I, I think a really big idea is one of responsibility um, so I, I think several times throughout the book kind of suggests that, um, you can only pay attention to something for so long before you start to feel responsible to it. Um, so my example would be, um, you know, I talk a lot about this app, iNaturalist that lets you take pictures of plants and it will suggest, uh, some possibilities to you. And then it's confirmed later by a person, um, which I'm really happy to hear. Apparently people have been downloading this app because of the book and finding out about plants around them. I, but, might, be, I might be one of those people. Yeah. It's so great. Um, and the people who made it are, I met them. They're amazing. Um, but, uh, so let's say you start out with like zero knowledge of plants. Then you get this app, you start paying attention. Maybe you start, um, 
like you maybe get a book about trees, you know, and there's a, there's a stage of it that's just only like joyful discovery. Um, and also discovering other people who are interested in the same thing. Um, and then you, maybe you go further than that. Then you start going to like, for me, it's like the California native plant society has like talks and lectures, um, or you just, you know, go to various like meetups or, and you start paying more attention in like local news to things like, the local shorebird population or what's happening with the oak trees you can only get so far down that road before you start to in any arena like see this long story of destruction that's not just right now it's very long and it's it leads up to now um and but at that point you're also so invested that like the idea of not doing anything about that would be absurd Mm -hmm. like you know doing something and paying attention to it for me are almost one and the same thing Um, and so I think that that, that's one way in which, you know, some of the things I'm talking about in the book could, could lead to, um, action and like engagement with something on a, maybe a local level level or on a level that you feel like you have some traction in. Um, and then I think also this kind of, um, ecological model of the self and of context, um, is potentially helpful for, you know, trying to create contexts in which, people can have debates and difficult conversations that will essentially like lead, lead to something that's not the inferno of the same. That's not the same kind of lowest, lowest common denominator thing that's being said over and over again. That's not helping anyone. Um, but actually something new. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good, good way of putting it. Um, and I think we're coming towards the end of our time. I do want to see if I can weave back in our friend Bartleby. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the phrase that he uses throughout his resistance campaign is, I prefer not to. But the thing that, when, as I was reading your book, and I had to go back and reread the story, uh, the thing that I remember from my high school class is that my teacher had taken like, at least two sessions to sort of talk about another phrase that he kept saying, which is, I am not particular. Oh, yeah. You know, there was like, like, would you like to do this? And he says, I, you know, I'd rather not, but I'm not particular. And, um, you know, that, and this, and I, I want to concede, like, this kind of interpretation is in the same vein as, like, playing the record backwards and hearing secret messages encoded in, <laughs> or something. Because yeah. this teacher <laughs> took the word particular and he says, okay, if you diagram that out, I am not particular. He, his point was that perhaps Bartleby is trying to convey, I am not a part and not being a part, I am, I am like literally in that I-thou position of being part, being the whole. And from that perspective, the 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 grounds or the premise of the question to to act in a particular way didn't apply, in a way. Right. Yeah. No, I totally buy that. I think that is totally genius. <laughs> but yeah, I I mean because again, like the other two characters, uh, the the other two. Um, employees in that story are so mechanistic and so determined. Um, I mean, and, and anyone who is, um, employed to do anything right is you're conceding a part of yourself to be an instrument for someone else, right? Like, or an instrument for profit or, um, and it's, it's an inevitable part, right. Of working, especially like a clerk, right? Like he's a clerk on wall street. Um, and so, uh, you're already sort of partly alienated. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense because Bartleby is not only inscrutable, but he, um, can't be used as a tool. Basically he's too much of a whole thing, (laughs) uh, to be used to those ends. 
But I, yeah. and I and coming back to what I was trying to comment on before, I think there's something about that position that that does make his employer makes it difficult for his employer to to like put into a box. You can't be pigeonholed. Like you know, that's why like the feelings right. of concern and care seem to emerge because of an element of that 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 position that he's coming from. Right. Like he's not, he's no, he's neither a worker nor a non-compliant worker. He's just a person. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, um, I have to say it's been a lot of fun talking to you. I really did enjoy reading the book. Um, and I recommend it, uh, particularly for people who are maybe not so drawn to kind of an engineer's approach to dealing with online issues, which there's, an, there's another popular book. I'm sure, you know, uh, digital minimalism by Cal Newport that mm-hmm. sort of one of his things is like you should map out every hour of your day and slot it and time block it so there's no wasted time and you know exactly when you're going online. And that's you offer a much I think um, more humane uh, <laughs> way of wading into this this theme. And uh, I, for myself, you know, I can proudly say that I can now differentiate pine trees from oak trees. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, actually, I know I'm being silly, but. Uh, that's one thing that it was that it really did impress upon. I was impressed by was is just how the, the vast amount of ignorance I have towards my natural world around me. You know, there's just even on my block in my little neighborhood. You know, looking at the, the plants that are on the sidewalk and not knowing the names of those those flowers, or even really not with any certainty whether the, the maple is a maple or an oak or not. Um, it kind of woke me up to things, and you know. To, to your credit, I spent last night walking my dog, looking around the neighborhood, but looking up at the trees, and it was a transformatively sublime experience. Like, I could not believe the way the light was coming in from the setting sun into the trees, into the, the, the roof of the, the architect. It was just absolutely extraordinary, and uh, I do, I give you credit for That's that. That's so great. Yeah, and the lovely thing about that is, like, you know, you, I mean, for me, as, like, a, a person who is just, like, uh, perpetually curious about things. Um, there's no, it's so different from like looking something up online where you like have the answer or you don't like, you know, there's, you can find out about a certain like family of trees and then different species of trees. And then what does that tree look like different times of the year? And what, what kinds of bugs live in the tree? It like just goes on forever. Like it'll just go on for my entire life. And that's such a wonderfully like um, seems sort of inexhaustible, mm-hmm. um, which I think is another maybe element of that kind of sublime. And and a, and a way of surviving the in, or escaping the infer- inferno of this of the same. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, here is again is the book How to Do Nothing, uh, Resisting the Attention Economy, and it's ironically put out by uh, Melville Publishing House. Is that the name? Yeah. Yeah. The publisher. <laughs> Yeah. So were you were you required to discuss Bartleby? <laughs> no. Um, and I, funny enough, uh, they sent me a tote bag that I wish I had it with me right now, but I wear it everywhere. It says I would prefer not to. Yeah. On the side. Well, no, well, along those lines, you know, I have to say this interview went much better than I thought it would, considering I, was, I had these recurring nightmares that I'd get on the phone with you and uh, I'd ask you a question and then you just sort of sit there <laughs> like I prefer. <laughs> I was considering whether we should even stage that as a performative art piece for a little while. Um, maybe that's not the next time. But um, how do, if people want to find you online, tongue in cheek. Uh, uh, my website is uh, has all uh, 
as my art on it. So, I mean, I talk a little bit about my art practice in the book, but yeah, it's mostly because my, my background is primarily as a visual artist. Um, and so my, my past writing is on there as well as, uh, yeah, a lot of art pieces, including the one at the dump. (laughs) Well, look, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks, Jenny. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jenny uh, as much as I did. I really got a lot out of the book and my conversation with her, and I highly recommend checking out the book itself. Again, How to Do Nothing. There's a link for you in the show notes. Do check it out and, and let me know what you think. Okay, this is where I say farewell. Thanks so much for listening today. I look forward to bringing you another Dharma Talk and more interviews soon. Until then, stay safe, keep practicing, be very well.